Hello, my friends, and welcome to another moment, a Black History Moment with Bo. And I hope this day finds you well and your life flowing in the direction for which you wanted to go. And I hope every day that your feet hit the floor, you realize that we are still in this war. And every one of us must do our bit to let the world know that we are somebody. Because this United States, they have a fear for those with knowledge and they control those without. So we have got to stay on top of it, my friends. And sometimes, just sometimes, you have to be the old you so people know that the new you still doesn't play that shit. We refuse to be oppressed. We refuse to be disrespected. We refuse to be anything but what we are, men and women of the African-American race. And we are no longer giving anyone the benefit of a doubt. You are what you show us. And now, my friends, I'm going to slip into darkness and bring out some things that you didn't know, some things that have been hidden from us on purpose. How bad must your history be that you have to steal ours? In 1854, black students in San Francisco became the first children segregated in California's public schools. But it wasn't long after that that the state law prohibited Negroes, Mongolians, and Indians from attending public schools with white children anywhere in California. Andrew Mulder, an early superintendent of schools, stated, The great mass of our citizens will not associate in terms of equality with those of inferior races, nor will they consent that their children do so. You see, in the early 1860s, California state law authorized school districts to provide separate schools for black Indian and Mongolians, apparently Asian, children, But a segregated school would only be established if the parents of at least 10 racially minority students petition a district to build one. And if the parents failed to do this, their children could be denied a public education altogether. And in districts with fewer than 10 racially minority school children, students could attend the regular schools unless the parents of white children objected. White parents tended to demand a segregated school for non-white students when their numbers increased in the community. California never included children of Mexican ancestry with blacks, Indians, and Asians in its state school segregation laws. 
You see, my friends, after the Civil War, members of a small but well-organized black population in California demanded equal access to public schools, and they sued the San Francisco School Board for refusing to enroll a black girl in a white school. But the California State Supreme Court ruled in 1874 that separate but equal schools for black students were legal. The cost of a separate education system for a small number of black children, however, caused the state legislature finally to abolish colored schools in 1880. But oh my, by the 1880s, Chinese immigration made that group the largest non-white minority in California. And what happened? You know it. Violent rights erupted against the Chinese by white workers fearful of job competition. And at first, the state barred Chinese children from any public education. Chinese parents sued, and in 1885, the California Supreme Court ruled this ban was unconstitutional. But the court reaffirmed that these children could be educated in Chinese separate but equal schools. You see, whiteness didn't care. If you wasn't white, you wasn't right. So what did they do? They turned around and banned immigration from China. And separate schools for fewer Chinese children became a burden on taxpayers. School districts increasingly admitted Chinese students into the public regular schools. And by the 1930s, segregated Chinese schools had mostly disappeared in California. After the United States government barred more Chinese from entering the country, the need for cheap labor in California spurred Japanese immigration into the state. When San Francisco segregated Japanese school children, their parents protested also, causing the government of Japan also to object. And that's when President Theodore Roosevelt got into it, and he ordered the U.S. Attorney General to file a lawsuit against the San Francisco School Board. In 1907, he negotiated a settlement that ended Japanese school segregation. In exchange, Roosevelt promised to work for restrictions on further Japanese immigration into the United States. And here's the thing. California Indian children suffered school exclusion and segregation longer than any other minority. The first becomes last. And the state ignored schooling Indian children for many years. Finally, the federal government began to organize Indian Day in boarding schools in 1870s. In 1921, the state legislature enacted a law that prohibited admitting Indian children to any public school if a federal school for them was nearby. A few years later, the California State Supreme Court ruled that although California Indian children had the right to public education, they could not be required to attend separate schools. And in the 1930s, the federal government started to phase out its Indian school system. And this is where it all started as far as Mexicans go. 
if you're understanding what I'm saying. Mexican-Americans were mostly unaffected by the crap over the racial segregation of Negroes, Mongolians, and Indians in California public schools. The courts classed people of Mexico ancestry as racially white. After 1900, however, revolution in Mexico and the need for farm workers and unskilled laborers caused large numbers of Mexicans to migrate to California. By 1930, these immigrants, along with Mexican-Americans who had lived in California for generations, made up California's largest minority. And as more children of this ethnic group entered the public school system, Anglo parents in some communities called for separate Mexican schools. Unlike California's other racial minorities, State law never authorized school districts to segregate children of Mexican ancestry. Even so, some districts began doing this after 1910, especially in Southern California. By the 1920s, many Southern California communities had established Mexican schools, along with segregated public swimming pools, movie theaters, and restaurants. A survey in 1931 revealed that 85% of California schools segregated children of Mexican descent in either separate classrooms or schools. Rarely did these children receive an education equal to that provided to the other students in the community. And the school boards offered many reasons for segregating students of Mexican descent. Most of these students who were American-born citizen. Supposedly, these children needed a special curriculum to learn English and become Americanized. But underlying these educational reasons lurked a common prejudice that Mexican-American children were mentally inferior, lacked personal hygiene, and posed a health threat to white Anglo children. And also, the local school board members often believed that Mexican-American students would soon drop out to work in the fields and citrus groves. So they thought an equal education for them was a waste of taxpayers' money. And in 1931, a state judge ordered that Mexican-American children to attend school on any equal basis with others in the community. By 1935, the legislature passed a strangely worded law that considered Mexicans as Indians. The law authorized separate schools for Indians, but then exempted descendants of the original American Indian of the United States. This seemed to leave those Mexican ancestors as the only Indians subject to school segregation. During World War II, Gonzalo Mendez leased a farm from a Japanese-American family ordered to a relocation camp. The farm was located in Westminster, a small town in Southern California's Orange County. Mendez moved his family to the farm, which was near an elementary school designated for white children by the Westminster School Board. 
In September 1944, West school officials told Mendez that his three children would have to attend the Mexican school. Hoover Elementary, ironically, the white school enrolled their cousins who had a French name and lighter skin. Years later, one of the Mendez children remembered the Hoover School as a terrible little shack that had no playground and was next to a cow pasture with an electrified fence. Mendez turned over managing the farm to his wife, and this allowed him time to organize Mexican-American parents to challenge the segregation of their children in Westminster and three other Orange County school districts. In 1945, Mendez and the other parents sued the school districts in federal court. Mendez hired Los Angeles civil rights attorney, and for the first time in a federal court, Marcus put forth an argument that segregation of K-12 students based on their nationality or ethnic background violated the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. This part of the Constitution prohibits states from denying any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Also, for the first time, Marcus introduced evidence that segregating students because of their ethnic background harmed them. Marcus called upon a sociologist and an education expert to testify that segregating Mexican-American students hindered their learning of English as well as American customs and ways. Educator Marie Hughes testified that segregation by its very nature is a reminder constantly of inferiority or not being wanted, of not being a part of the community. Joel Ockel, the attorney for Orange County, defended the school districts. His primary argument was that the federal courts had no authority to decide cases involving K-12 education, since that was entirely a state matter. Ogo further justified that Mexican schools as necessary for providing special instructions to students not fluent in English and not familiar with American values and customs. He insisted that these separate schools were equal to white schools. Thus, he concluded they were constitutional under California and U.S. Supreme Court rulings that upheld separate but equal schools. In 1946, Judge Paul McCormick decided the Mendez case in favor of the Mexican-American parents. He first dismissed Ogle's contentions that the federal court had no jurisdiction in state education cases. Any violation of U.S. constitutional rights by state or local government bodies, he wrote in his decision, warranted federal court intervention. The Orange County School District appealed Judge McCormick's decision to the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco. Joel Ogle repeated his arguments and asserted segregation by itself is not a denial of equal protection of the laws. David Marcus had a lot more help this time. 
Thurgood Marshall was a civil rights attorney for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. He helped write a brief presenting evidence that separate schools based on race were far from equal. The American Jewish Congress, American Civil Liberties Union, National Lawyers Guild, Japanese American Citizens League, and even the Attorney General of California also filed briefs. They all supported the Mexican-American parents. On April 14, 1947, the Federal Appeals Court ruled 7-0 to zero to uphold Judge McCormick's decision. This court also avoided the separate but equal issue. The school board's decided against appealing to the U.S. Supreme Court. Therefore, the Mendez case ended as the first successful federal school desegregation decision in the nation. This decision shielded only children of Mexican ancestry from public school segregation in California under its current laws. Any state, including California, was still free to enact laws that segregated children based on their race in separate but equal schools. Although the impact of the Mendez case was limited, its real importance was to test new legal arguments and evidence against segregation in public schools. This paved the way for the historic Brown versus the Board of Education case decided by the Supreme Court in 1954. Thurgood Marshall, who helped write the NAACP's brief on behalf of the Mendez and the Mexican-American children, argued against black school segregation in the Brown case. As in the Mendez case, he made extensive use of social science evidence demonstrating how segregated schooling harmed minority children. Earl Warren, who signed the law ending school segregation in California seven years earlier, was chief justice of the Supreme Court. He wrote an unanimous decision that finally overturned the separate but equal doctrine. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal, he declared. There you have it, my friends. That's how we got the ability to walk into certain schools in the North and play on the playground with white children as well as Mexican children, as well as Asian children. Although this was not true in the South, because Southern children were not allowed that privilege until much later. Well, their music tells me that it is that time. I hope you learned something from this. I know I learned that every ethnic group in this world will eventually stand up for itself and will not be oppressed forever. Back me into a corner and I will come out fighting. And that's what they did. And this, friends, is history. This is American history. So how can you tell American history and not tell the stories of the minorities that had to live 
during that time of history. Well, that music tells me it's once more time for me to get out of here. But before I go, I got to tell you this. They lie about our history. They lie about police shootings. They lie about crime rates. They lie about our statistics. Isn't it therefore time that we realize that they're also lying about the people that we truly are? We must stop expecting truth from a people that clearly despises truth. Until next time, my friends, it has been my honor. Have a fabulous day. Peace to my ancestors and elders. I walk in your strength, legacy, and power today and every day.